Well, if you have God's Word with you, let's turn tonight to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Let me read uh, the text that we'll be reading and we'll have a time of prayer together. And this is the reading of God's Word. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You all bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for producing the one body. We thank you that it was nothing less than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that accomplished this body. Father, thank you that we are all under uh, one Father. And I pray that as we continue to learn about one body and how to build the body of your church, Lord, we pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we may know the hope of our calling, the inheritance that we have, and the power that is available to us Lord, teach us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, You know, many people today think that the incarnation of Jesus Christ began at the first Christmas at Bethlehem, and it ended when Jesus ascended up into the clouds. They think that God became flesh and dwelt among us while he was here on this earth, but when he was taken back to heaven, Jesus went back just to becoming God. The truth is, that was only the beginning of the incarnation of Christ. The process of incarnation is still going on. And here's what I mean. The life of Jesus is no longer manifested upon this earth through a single physical body limited to one geographical location. Rather, today, the life of Jesus Christ is shown throughout the whole world through his corporate body comprised of millions of individuals just like you and me. And this body is called the church. It's really fascinating when you open the book of Acts, you'll find that Luke, the writer of this book, tells a certain young man named Theophilus that he first recorded for him the gospel according to Luke, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then in Acts, the sequel really to his gospel Luke continues to record the work of Christ across the globe, yet Jesus himself only appears in the first 11 verses of Acts. You look at chapter 1, verse 11, you discover that Jesus ascends into heaven, yet the story of his work on earth continues for 28 powerful, history-revolutionizing chapters. You say, how can that be? Because the rest of Acts is actually the story of the work of his new body, the church. 
when his body lives in and through the Holy Spirit, the church is nothing less than his extension of Jesus' life here on this earth. The church as his body is quite literally are the hands to do his work, his feet to run his errands, and his voice to speak his words. So you see, through the physical life of Jesus, though it began at the virgin conception of Mary, his life continues on even this day and amazingly in us. It's no wonder that Paul has chosen the figure of a body for the nature of the church. It's because he's emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is seeking to do the will of God through the body of Christ just as he was able to do the will of God through the second person of the Trinity. And we need to let that sink in. Because when we come to understand this truth in our lives, our our outlook on life is powerfully transformed. Our relationship with God deepened. Our lives effectively used for the glory of God. And this is just what Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that our worthy calling is to be his body on earth and then he goes on to tell us from, in verses 7 to 16 how we are to function as his body. In other words, verses 1 to 6 establishes the basis of our unity as one body. And now he tells us the means to keep the unity. And what we see from verses 7 to 16 is that Christian unity is enriched by the diversity of our gifts. Uh, If you look back at verses 4 to 6, Paul says that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God, Paul has pointed to the oneness of believers rooted in the oneness of the Godhead. But as soon as he does, if you notice, he goes on to speak of the diversity of the body it goes on to tell us but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of christ's gift and the diversity and the variety of all the gifts is are listed in verse 11 he gave some as apostles he gave some as prophets some as evangelists some as pastors and teachers so what we see is from unity to diversity All are members of one body, but we are each uniquely diverse in our God-given gifts. We actually find the same truths in 1 Corinthians 12. If you go there with me, you see 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 4 to 6. The same principle is right here, as well as also in Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6 tells us now there are variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministry, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And then in verse 11, after mentioning several specific gifts, Paul writes, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And so just in that same sense in Ephesians 4 verse 7, We move from unities uh, to the diversities. That is not really the whole truth, though, because he passes through the unities, through the diversities, right, each of us having gifts, and he moves on to show us that the diversities are to, to be the result of a marvelous unity 
a unity that actually operates in the accomplishment of the will of God. And so this diversity, far from destroying the unity, if properly used, will actually promote it. That is how God wants us to operate as his body, as individual members with different functions. It's for the purpose of building the body of Christ. And as we'll see tomorrow, it's building up for the purpose of a mature man in all aspects into Christ who is our head. And so in our efforts to maintain the unity of the Spirit, this text gives us a model of church unity where everybody doesn't look the same and speak the same and does the same. But a body, a body containing diverse but important and contributing parts. You see, that's why I really, really love Baskin Robbins. Because you get 31 choices, you know what I'm saying? But it's all ice cream, right? I mean, ice cream would be boring if all the flavors were just vanilla, you know? But you have Jamocha almond fudge, right? Oreos, cookies, and cream. Even some of that orange sherbet, you know? And some Rocky Road. You know what I'm talking about, right? So without the common bond we share of being joined to Christ, there is no unity at all. On the other hand, without a diversity of parts, the church is not healthy, cannot function properly. I mean, after all, is this not uh, the way a physical body functions? Uh, in the body of flesh and bones, there are a variety of cells. There are nerve cells, blood cells, tissue cells, muscle cells, and so on, right? Each having a different and distinct function. And the body really operates not by cells getting together and deciding what is the best thing to do, right? But by simply functioning, right? By doing what they were individually, particularly were designed to do. It is a function of the head to connect all of it together, to operate effectively, but each cell is given a task of functioning according to its design. Now certainly, the body does not operate by cells rebelling and doing their own thing, right? Did you ever experience a rebellion of muscle cells in your stomach? We call it indigestion. Some of you might have it right now, right? It's what happens the day after I eat King Taco. You know King Taco? Got some spicy sauce, it messes up my stomach. That's, that's what happens. Or what about a rebellion in your brain cells? That's called insanity. It means that the body is sick. Something is not working right. It is not operating the way it was intended to do. And that's really the whole problem with the church today. Since not all of its members are functioning and doing their part, the whole body of Christ is weakened and is sick. And so I want to highlight one general principle before we get to the particulars of this text. And it's this, that God assigns to every believer an important function in the body. If you turn back to uh, Romans 12, let's look at there for a second. I know you guys are going through the exposition of Romans. Did you guys reach chapter 12 yet? Oh, all right. So chapter 12, let's, let's look at verses 4 to 6. Paul is using an analogy, uh, again, of a physical body. And in verse 4, he says, just as each one of us has, uh, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, 
we who are many form one body, and then goes on to tell us that we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Now, did you notice in that text the relationship between a function and a gift? We all have different functions in the body and different gifts that enable us to fulfill those functions. You know, I, I remember growing up in my high school, college days, right? There was a lot of emphasis on, placed on spiritual gifts, especially on discovering what your gift is. And as important as that may be, not enough emphasis has been placed on discovering what one's function is in the body. You see, spiritual gifts are given by God to enable us to fulfill our function. As Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one of us has received a gift, a special gift, he says, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Paul also spoke to the Corinthian church, to, but to each one of us uh, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Gifts are to be used to serve others, to edify the body of Christ. Some of you here may function as a Sunday school teacher, as a pastor. Some of you function as administratively, a servant behind the scenes doing the PowerPoint, setting up chairs, uh, doing snacks. I mean, all of those great things. Uh, whatever your function is that God has assigned you in the body of Christ, we are to understand that our function is tied up to edifying the body of Christ. And God supplies us with gifts in order to fulfill that function. And realizing that God assigns every believer an important function in the body and fulfilling that function by the spiritual gift God gives us is really one of the secrets, the fundamental secrets of operating in the church today. This is what makes the church powerful and distinct from all other organizations. And so with that in mind, let's come now to the particulars, uh, principles of building the body of Christ. And there are five of these I want to go through today. Number one, every Christian has a gift, and every gift is important. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Paul says that all Christians have been gifted by the grace of God, but they don't get the same gifts. And therein lies the beautiful diversity of the body. Paul lays emphasis here on the word each. It's emphatic in the Greek. It means that if you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. Now, it's very important to acknowledge this because so many Christians seem to think that they don't have a gift. Uh, this gift may be lying dormant within you, may be unused. You may not know what it is there, but it is there if you are a true believer in, the, in Jesus Christ. To say that I don't have a gift is to say that I don't have a function in the body. Such a thought flies in the face of the New Testament teachings. You see, God has a job for every single believer, whether it's public or unknown, big or small. God has a job for every believer in the church. And if you're a Christian, then you are a member of the body of Christ and each member is an important function in the body, as we talked about. And within our function, God gives us a spiritual gift for the performance of our function. Which means every single person here is an important member of the body of Christ. Friends, we need to realize this because we need each other. 
right? The, the, the eye cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. The foot cannot say to the eye, I don't need you either, right? Uh, Warren Myers, he wrote a book, How to Be Effective in Prayers, and he tells a story about two remarkable people, William Carey, a missionary to India, and Carey's bedridden, paralyzed sister. William Carey, who has been called the father of modern missions, he uh, undertook a great role as a Bible translator, was a pioneer in missionary efforts. His sister, well, we don't really know her name. She is mentioned only as Carey's sister. But while William Carey was labored in, in India, translating and printing parts of the Bible into 40 languages, his sister lay on her back in London, praying hour after hour, month after month for all the details and the struggles and ministries of her brother's work. And in telling this story, Meyer asked, to whose account will God credit the victories won through this remarkable man? The point is, while William Carey had a more public character in ministry, his sister was just as important as he because without her ministry of intercession for her brother, the work would have not gone forward. And beloved, so it is with us. No matter how public or how unknown we may be, each of us has received something from the risen Lord for the building of the body of Christ. Now let's note the second principle. Every gift is given by God's grace. By God's grace. The word grace in the original Greek is charis from which we get the English adjective charismatic, and that's derived. This grace is a God-given capacity for service, which each of us has received as a Christian. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 8, Paul himself says, referring to his own gifts in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace, this charis was given. And what was this grace? He goes on to tell us to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, Paul clearly tells us that one of his gifts were preaching, and he described receiving the gift of God's, uh, this gift as his undeserving grace. So whether you might be like the mighty apostle Paul, endowed with special abilities, right, to do ministry, or you might be like the lesser-known Epaphroditus, if you don't know that name, he is in the Bible, right, as a fellow servant of Paul, you have received your gifts on the same basis by God's grace. And from this principle, there really is a twofold danger that emerges. Number one, that those that have received a special endowment from the Lord must not overestimate their importance. The temptation for you will to think that you are so gifted because of your hard work and your abilities, and you give yourselves credit for them. And by, do, by doing so, you fail to use your gifts for the body of Christ. Here's a second danger. Those who have not received such a special endowment might lose courage and even despair. Your temptation is to grumble, throw a self-pity party on yourself, and perhaps quit serving the Lord altogether. We must learn here today that our gifts, whether great or small, is by the grace of God. And so if you've been given a special and more noticeable gifts, be humble. 
What you have has been given to you. Your gifts has been given to you. Your abilities has been given to you. You have absolutely nothing from what you have received. On the other hand, if you have more humbler gifts, don't be envious. Resist the temptation to be jealous. Don't look at another person and say, why does he have this gift and I don't? You, you see, we must all be content with the function and the gifts we have been given. Our attitudes must be, you know what, I, I don't care how lowly, how insignificant this gift is. I don't care if I'm noticed. I don't care if I'm praised by others. I know that the Lord has called me by his grace, which I do not deserve. I will do it all for his glory and for the sake of the church. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That needs to be our attitude here this evening. To know that every gift is given by God's grace will keep us humble and fervent in serving the Lord. And each person has received a gift by God's grace, and we would do well to have less concern about measuring the merit of our gifts and more concern about being a gift. Here's principle number three. Gifts are sovereignly distrib distributed by Christ. Gifts are sovereignly distributed by Christ. If you go back to Ephesians 4 from verses 7 to 11, within the flow of these verses, the key word that continues to emerge is that of Christ's giving. It tells us to each one of us, grace was given by him. According to the measure of Christ's giving, he gave gifts to men, verse 8. And it is he who gave some as apostles and prophets and so on. The point being, Christ sovereignly distributed his gifts to all members of his body. And you know what? God not only determines what gifts each of us has, but he also uh, determines the measure and the extent of that gift. He says at the end of verse 7 that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so two people may have the same gift, but in different measure, right? God has gifted, gifted some men like John Piper and John MacArthur for worldwide influence, right, for the body of Christ. God has also gifted some men like me at a small congregation in South Pasadena or Pastor Eric and Pastor Danny at a very small street called Osgood Road, right? You see, we may have the same gift, but in different measure. Uh, it reminds us of the parable that Jesus gave. You remember of the three servants, right? Receiving three different measures, amounts of talents, each according to his ability. Matthew 25 goes on to tell us. Uh, a talent was a measure of money, not an ability to do something special. Uh, it tells us that one servant with five talents went and traded them and gained five more. The, men who, the man who received two talents did the same and gained two more. But the man only with one talent hid the money until the master returned and gave him back that measly one talent. And the last servant was condemned as a lazy and wicked servant, and he was immediately thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point I'm trying to make from this parable is that each servant had the same calling to invest money, but different degrees of ability within that calling and different responsibilities according to their abilities. And since God has given us a measure of our gift, 
we are all responsible to live up to that measure. The person who has a greater measure of a certain gift has greater responsibility for it. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. The three servants in this parable were judged not in relation to each other, but according to how they used what was sovereignly given to them. And you know what? That's one of the questions I feel that will be surely asked when you face the judgment seat of Christ. Did you recognize what your gift was? Did you exercise your gift for the body of Christ? Were you a good steward of what God has given you? You say, well, you know, I'm not really sure what my gift is. How do I discover my gift? I don't know what it is. Well, you know what? Taking a spiritual test a survey is not going to help you. Sitting around waiting for God to show you what your gift is will not help you. One of the best advice I have for finding and using your gift is to just go to work within the church. No amount of spiritual gifts can replace this step. The actual hands-on doing of ministry in various ways is the proving ground where actual discovery comes. The last thing I would want you to do is to worry about exactly what your gift is so that you're walking around, moping around because you're not sure how God has gifted you. Or even worse, maybe excusing yourself altogether of the Christian faith because you think, well, I don't have this gift, so I guess I'm relieved of serving, right? Friends, did you know that you are responsible to carry out all the gifts that are in operation today? In other words, even if another sister in the church might be a more gifted servant, every single Christian is commanded to serve. And so if there is a need in the body, meet the need, right? You may not have the spiritual gift of teaching, but aren't you responsible to study God's word and to encourage others with what you have learned? You may not have the gift of evangelism, but did not Christ commission all of us to be a witness for him? How about showing mercy, right? Should we not show mercy to others because we think we don't have this gift? You know, one of the surest ways then to discover your gift is to be a faithful Christian. And as you serve and see opportunities and service around you, God will make it clear what your gift is. Here's principle number four. The giver of spiritual gifts is the ascended Christ. Now, according to verse 7, each gift is Christ's gift. And this truth is now enforced with a quotation from Psalm 68, 18. It says in verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 pictures God as a sovereign, a triumphant sovereign who marches in triumph before all of Israel and ascends on high, and he receives gifts among men. The idea of ascension is connected to the enthronement of a king after victory, when the spoils of battle are given to the king so that he might share the spoils back to his followers. 
And so the reason why the Apostle Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, 18, that he ascended on high and he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men is to tell us that there is a similarity between the Psalm and the Old Testament where God is seen going up to the top of the heavens, receiving gifts in order that, that he might bestow them because that is what is exactly happening right now. In this age, the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. And when he ascended to the Father on high, the Father gave the Son the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by receiving the Holy Spirit, Jesus poured forth these spiritual gifts among men. But in order for Christ to first ascend, he first had to descend. When Paul says in verse 9, that Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth, he's not referring to Christ's death, nor does he mean that he went down into the underworld to the depths of hell itself, but refers to his incarnation when he humbled himself and became a man. It is the fact that he descended before he ascended that makes his ascension unique from all others in the Bible. As great as uh, Enoch, you know, ascended to heaven, or Elijah was taken to the chariots of fire, as great as those privileges were, they never first descended into heaven. That is unique to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are reminded that he who has gone up higher than any other man ever went, once for our redemption, went down lower than any other man has ever gone. And it took nothing less than his descent from glory down to the earth and all of the pain and anguish and sorrow of his life culminating in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross and through the resurrection and in the ascension of triumph where he received the Holy Spirit so that he might pour these gifts forth. Now, had Jesus not ascended, the Holy Spirit would have never sent down to us. But the fact that Jesus did ascend and pour down these gifts of the Spirit signals the downfall of Christ's enemies and the beginning of the uh, building of his church. You see, God cares for his body. He loves his body. He cares for his body so much that he gives to every single member of the body of Christ the Holy Spirit to indwell with them and spiritual gifts to grow his body. And the church is the body of Christ and will not be able to exist and grow apart from the provision of the spiritual gifts that he gives to us. And so what are these gifts that Christ gives to the church? Paul is very specific in Ephesians in telling us that these gifts are gifts of leadership given to the church. I mean, aren't Pastor Eric, Pastor Danny, and Basil, aren't they gifts to us? Will you just acknowledge them? They're, they're gifts to us, right? You guys are great gifts to the body of Christ. There's no clapping here. Oh, yeah, see, there you go. There you go. Where to love at, right? Uh, we read in verse 11 that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Let me, let me run through these really quickly. And this is the fifth principle we now come to, that Christ gives gifted leadership for the purpose of the equipping of the saints. First, apostles, they were unique offices chosen by the Lord, who witnessed his own resurrection, whose role was to carry out the gospel message 
with God's very own authority. And so when they spoke, it was as if Christ was speaking through them. Next, our prophets. They were given for the stabilization of the church. They were gifts to the church for the, uh, to provide edification, exhortation, and comfort. They revealed God's will to the church at a time when the biblical canon was incomplete. Not everybody has the privilege of having a Bible in your hand. And because of that, prophets were given. So let me ask you, are prophets and apostles, do they exist today? Well, no. Because they were given in order. Uh, they were the ones who laid the foundation of the church. If you go back to Ephesians 2, verse 20, it tells us very clearly here that the church's foundation is laid on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. The foundation of building is laid only once. You cannot build another foundation after it's already been built. The foundation was finished centuries ago, and we cannot temper it anyway. So if anybody tells you that they're an apostle or prophet, they are a false prophet, all right? The apostles and prophets were given to the church to get her established, but now prophets and apostles, they no longer exist today. Yet, you know, we're not deprived of their benefits because they have left us with the New Testament. Now, there is a group which God gives to every generation, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Evangelists are like the obstetricians, the OBGYNs of the church, all right? They're the ones who are gifted in bringing new births. Evangelists of men and women, they have this special gift of communicating the gospel to make it very relevant to the lost. And though all Christians are expected to evangelize, not all have the gift of an evangelist. They are wonderful gifts to the church. Then there, there are the pediatricians of the church, pastors and teachers. They are those who have been gifted by God to help the body have a spiritual diet and uh, have, uh, help, have, help them have plenty of spiritual exercises. Pastor literally means shepherd. Peter says, be shepherd of God's flock under your care. Pastors are the caretakers, those who feed the sheep with God's word under the supervision of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So while all pastors um, are to be teachers, not all teachers are to be pastors. Some of you are Sunday school teachers teaching the young ones. This is relevant to you. But the reason why Paul links these two offices together is because the pastor and teacher are characterized by the teaching of God's word. The teaching of the truth of God's word is what Peter calls feeding the flock of God which is among you. And pastors and teachers are to make feeding the sheep of God's word as their top priority. Now, when we look at these gifts in verse 11, what, what do they all have in common? It all deals with teaching of God's Word. It shows us that the Word of God is foundational to the church. As one writer said, there is nothing more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. It is the teaching which builds up the church it is teachers who are needed the most. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I once heard a quote, and I'd like to share it with you. He says, you know, in my pulpit, I, I preach the Bible for two reasons. First, I am not smart enough to preach anything else. 
If I were to preach on social issues, there are sociologists in my congregation who would know far better than I. But he says, second, I am too smart to preach anything else because I know that God blesses his word and they will not return void. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree to that, that he is too smart to preach anything else because this is how God builds his body. Now, for the very important part of this principle, now he turns to the purpose of the gifted people to the church. He says of these gifted leaders, now watch closely, are giving for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. God gives to the church spiritual leaders whose role is to equip the member of the body in order that they might do the work of ministry. Let me say that again because it's so important. He says that these gifted leaders have been given to the church in order that the church might be equipped to do the ministry. You see what's going on here? The gifted church leaders have been given to equip you to do the work of ministry. That's right. You do the work of ministry. Now, if you have an old school King James version, there's a comma after for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of service, comma, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, read in that way, that would make the purpose for church leaders for three tasks, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the building up of the body of Christ. Read in that way, the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ falls entirely on the shoulders of pastors and leaders based on that reading. That is a sad conclusion many have come to when they come to church. They think that the pastor is the paid professional. He is the one behind the pulpit, so he's the one responsible to do the work of ministry. And we are the ones sitting in a stadium ready to cheer him on, right? The charge against the church of the body of Christ is that there is one big mouth and a lot of little ears. Friends, we are not spectators in this arena called church. The only spectator in the gathering of the church family is God. He is the audience of one. You know, someone has said at a football game, is 70,000 people desperately in need of exercise watching 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest. There's a lot of truth in that. What's going on in our Christian churches? See, we have this church model of a bus, right? Where the pastor does all the driving while the congregation is sitting in the back sleeping. Some of them sightseeing, not really helping at all. But that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. There are no commas in the original text. They were put there by the editors. And so without the comma, the passage says something entirely different. Instead of giving three tasks to church leaders, it gives one task to pastors and leaders to equip the saints and another to the congregation to do the work of ministry And as a result of both fulfilling their proper God-given function, the body of Christ may be built up. And so my purpose as a pastor, Pastor Danny's purpose as a pastor, Pastor Eric's purpose and Basil, they're, they're not here to do the work of ministry. Our purpose 
right, as pastors, is not to be the primary edifier of the church, right? That primary edifier is to be you, you. That's what Paul is saying here, and that is a magnificent principle. It's what John Piper calls the Magna Carta of church ministry. You know, the last time I visited Pillar Baptist Church, I had the privilege of visiting and participating in most of the meetings of the church life. And I've noticed that every single church meeting was aimed at instruction, aimed at training, or aimed at worshiping Christians all together. In the Sunday service, the preaching of God's Word is there. Even Sunday school, the teaching of God's Word was central. Even during family group time, I mean, you weren't getting small little trinkets right at the Bible. You were getting some meat. We were getting a, a dose of hermeneutics up in that class. And I know personally that Pastor Danny and Pastor Eric are laboring week after week, preaching and teaching God's word to you. But the purpose of why they do what they do is so that you would be equipped to do the work of the church and not that they would carry the weight of the church. And, and I really do praise God for many of you. I see many servants as deacons in training, Sunday school teachers, praise team members, people behind the scenes setting up chairs. And my encouragement to you is to excel still more. You know, in the 1970s, uh, Moody Monthly published an article about Grace Community Church the church where John MacArthur is the senior pastor. Now, at that time, in the 1970s, they were a much smaller church, but there were so many people coming into the small little building. And the magazine entitled the story, The Church with 900 Ministers. That's because they had nearly 900 people and nearly everyone actively serving the body of Christ. I like that title. It's one that I pray that pillar would one day come, become. So, beloved, when you meet with your brothers and sisters in Christ, know that you have a job to do. You have a job to meet the spiritual needs of the body. Each of you is an important contributing member of the body of Christ. You've been given a gift from God to serve and edify the body and put your gift to use. And when you gather with the saints, open up your eyes to see different opportunities around you because every single person in this room, they have a spiritual need. So come on a mission to serve the saints, helping them to become more like Jesus. You know, I think that a, one of the greatest ways to increase the effectiveness of personal ministry is to build quality relationships with individual members throughout the week. Instead of uh, merely attending a church and then cultivating your closest Christian fellowships outside of it, uh, get to know your church family better. You'll, you'll discover amazing strengths that they have. You'll also discover many different ministry opportunities when you take time to build intimate relationships with one another. And, and you know what? Time together on Sundays it will be so much sweeter to you. It won't be this superficial time that you chat up with, how are you doing? Yeah, all this stuff. It'll be an intimate, sweet time for you and your family to connect together and to know them better. And single men, just don't just do this with the ladies. I know it's time to holler and build those intimate relationships, but grab another man and, and read some John Owen together or something, you know? Moms, I could see you coming together for lunch 
and encouraging one another, going through a book together, and, and single uh, guys, and you know, all this stuff. Just The church will be an amazing time when you take the time out of the week to just build together for mutual encouragement. Now let me close our time by addressing four kinds of people I believe are here tonight. Number one, some of you are here are not Christians. You need to know that you are a sinner. And by your sins before a holy God, you are deserving of his wrath. Christ Jesus, who we said earlier at the moment when he ascended into the right hand of the Father, he first descended to the earth as the Son of Man, who knew no sin, but became sin on our behalf, so that if we put our faith and trust in Christ tonight, you will be given forgiveness of sins and salvation. There is nothing more important for you to do tonight than the business of repenting and turning to Christ as your Savior. There's a second group of people here. Others of you are relatively new Christians. You might be new, a newcomer to Pillar Baptist Church. You should strongly consider becoming a member of this church because becoming a member allows you to be part of a church family where you can reap the benefits and all the privileges that come uh, of being a church member. You should strongly consider joining a church that is faithful to the gospel and take every advantage of different opportunities for you to be equipped with God's word. There's a third group of people here. There are some of you who are more mature in your faith and you're involved in ministry in some way or somehow. I would encourage you to be weary in the work, but never weary of it. Be faithful and steadfast always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. So my, my real concern is for a fourth group of people, and I suspect that most of you might fall in this group. Those who have been Christians for quite a while, but you're not involved in ministry to other believers. You've been sitting under faithful preaching of God's word for years but you're still in the same place where you began your Christian walk. You may be too preoccupied with your job, your career, your relationships. You may be out of fellowship with Christ. You've lost your first love, so you don't have the motivation to serve anymore. You may feel that since others are more qualified than you to serve, perhaps I don't have to do anything. Or you could very well just be lazy. Or you could be self-serving and come to church wanting to be served. Whatever the case may be, the point is get out of the stands and onto the playing field. You've been given a stewardship by the grace of God. Be faithful in what God has given you. And he may not have given you much to be responsible for, but you do have a responsibility and you are an important member of the body of Christ. May God help us to realize what ministry really is that is performed by all of us. We each have a gift. We each are responsible. The whole body is dependent upon each other. Christ left his, left his body on this earth. Let's use our gifts and serve the body of Christ to show forth his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we confess to you of our sins. 
we confess to you that we, or maybe some of us, have been like the wicked, lazy servant who have been given a responsibility, a stewardship from God, a spiritual gift. But Father, we are not using it. Lord, I pray that they would be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of your word so that they would know the high calling and the responsibility that they have. And Father, I pray that they would contribute to the body. Father, I do thank you for the pastors and the leaders that are here at this church. I thank you that they are laboring in equipping the saints. I pray that you would continue to give them more strength, Lord, more humility, more love for Christ so that they would be able to do the work they were called to do. And Father, we do pray for the whole congregation as a whole as we understood today that we are to do the work of the ministry. Father, help us to know that the church will never be healthy and never grow as it should be until each of us contribute to the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.